Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, of course you have to be able to get down in the details and be analytical and be able to run something through to completion. But I think there is a beauty to um, being a generalist and knowing uh, a, a large landscape of um, different tools, techniques, methods that could help in a project. And then, you know, being able to pick out what is going to work for that specific company or that specific problem. And then, you know, you may not have all the depth on that, but you at least know where to go to an expert. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that generalist model can be, um, can be very helpful. I think it gives a, a, a kind of example for you to also pull from different methods that can all be beneficial. So once you have experience at an organization or through consulting projects or what have you under your belt, then you can go and look at some lean tools. You can look at some Six Sigma tools. You can look at some kind of traditional project management. Um, and, and you can look at this whole repertoire of tools that you have as an improvement nerd and then go into a project and say, how am I going to build the unique tools, techniques, process for this project in this context? Welcome to the Improvement Nerds Podcast, where we host conversations about the things that nerd us out with one goal in mind, sharing best practices and sharing techniques and tools that allow us to make lasting change. In each episode, we'll feature a different idea and hopefully through that episode, give you a set of new tools, new skills, and new thinking that'll allow you to change how you do your work, how you lead others, and how you show up in your life. We're so excited that you've chosen to nerd out with us. We hope that these episodes are exactly the things that you need to hear in order to get started in making the improvements that you want to see happen in the world. If these episodes speak to you, please subscribe to our podcast like what we're doing, and leave a comment. You find in some people, really, I think it's called the T-shaped, kind of T-shaped knowledge. Have you heard about that? Where they are are broad enough to um, kind of know that there are lots of tools out there and, and know to pull from maybe the one that they don't have as much experience in if they need to. Um, but then the the base of the T, kind of the, the vertical line, I guess, is representing going deeper into um, one subject so that um, you do have that specialization in one specific area. And not to knock the specialists who are, who are out there, I think um, generalists and specialists both need each other. Um, you can't just uh, be able to survey the landscape and, and knock it down into the details um, that a specialist can really bring. And on the on the flip side, you know, you can't just attack every single problem with um, one specific lens that um, a specialist can bring. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's complementary. Uh, hopefully, that <laughs> that keeps the um, comments at bay if there are any pro specialists listening, but um, I, I really do think that those uh, views complement each other.
Margaret Mead said it best when she shared that one should never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, that it was the only thing that ever had. I couldn't agree more. Let's get busy, Improvement Nerds. We've got a lot of work to do. Hey, Improvement Nerds. This is Tom. I'm back with another episode of the Improvement Nerds podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with a special guest, AJ Hobbs. I'll bring her on in just one moment. But I want to set the stage for the conversation we're going to have today. So backstory, AJ and I, we met uh, at a conference, um, the HSPI uh, conference in which you meet uh, to talk about improving healthcare. So um, the two of us connected, we got to know each other, and she got me out of my comfort zone and had me be a podcast guest for the HSPI podcast. And so today I'm returning that favor and making her get out of her comfort zone. So she'd already shared like, this is 20 times worse than what she had done to me. Um, But I told her when I get payback, I get it in a big way. So AJ, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to have the conversation. How are you doing? Absolutely great. I am excited to to do this too. And um, yeah, I'm have to start brainstorming ways that I can repay this 20 times more. So I'll, I'll work on that throughout this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, there may be in the episode comments, like people suggesting ideas. So we'll have to watch the feedback that we get from individuals of your potential approaches to get payback on me. Oh, this is, this is, uh, this is a great, great kind of crowdsourcing initiative. I love this. Yeah. So the, the podcast that Tom mentioned, we, both spoke on for uh, the HSPI conference, we were asked to talk for about a minute. And so here we are. And I think we'll have a podcast today uh, closer to an hour. So um, yeah, upping it, upping it to a few hours of time of times. I would love to get your ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited to have this conversation today, and I'm so thankful you and I met each other during that conference back in March of 2020, so it was earlier this year, and I think at the conference, I remember seeing on the news um, mention of COVID-19 events occurring overseas, and by the time we all got home, um, I think within five days or so, the state of Indiana, they um, sent our kids home from school and we were put in a stay in place, uh, type situation. So man, it was just crazy that the weekend prior, uh, we were in a conference with, you know, thousands of people talking about innovating in healthcare mm-hmm. and a lot changed for us as improvement professionals and conference goers and how we got growth and development, but man, a lot changed mm-hmm. for healthcare too. It, it is crazy. Uh, there are some things that happened at the beginning of 2020. And when I remember that they were in 2020, I think my mind starts to explode. Uh, this conference is definitely one of them. Um, but yeah, the, the conference itself is an annual affair. And they've pivoted so much because uh, as healthcare, as a healthcare improvement conference, uh, healthcare has been so focused on addressing the pandemic this year. Uh, but then of course, to keep the conference goers safe and still deliver material. They've had to pivot to an online format for 2021. And so uh, a lot, a lot has changed um, 
in in the HSPI world, which is just a small microcosm of everything else <laughs> that we've all gone through, right? Right. I was holding out hope uh, for the so HSPI, the Health Systems Process Improvement um, Conference. So I was holding out hope that in February we would have been able to convene in Florida and have had the conference in person. Um, but I'm glad they're still having it, and it's going to be great even in the digital world. So uh, we'll do a shameless plug to that conference and encourage our listeners to check it out and to, um, you know, look, check our show notes and try to find that link and maybe enroll. I, I'm attending, I'm presenting again this year and I'm pumped up. I can't wait for the event to come. Yeah, I'm so glad you're doing that. Um, after being a first time attendee last year and now uh, really involved and going to share about some change management topics. Is that right? Yeah, and design thinking. So um, it'll be a lot of fun. I can't wait to meet other improvement nerds through the conference that are passionate about bringing design thinking tools into healthcare space. And I met so many great people last time. You're one of them and um, probably too many others to mention. But, you know, there was people who were doing Hosh and Conry uh, within healthcare space, which is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there were people doing daily improvement. Uh, people were doing computer learning and bringing in uh, process automation. So all the presentations really, um, the best of the best people there were talking about how they were trying to advance healthcare. And the top, the topics this year are going to be even cooler because healthcare has had to innovate in so many ways this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly lots of, uh, adaptive work, I'm sure. Very uh, quick thinking. Uh, how do you do change that uh, you're, you're not prepared for? A lot of change projects, you know what, you're, you're know what you want to change at least, and you have a few months to set it up. And you know, we didn't get that luxury this year. So I'm sure there'll be some, some really interesting content. And like you said, um, always look forward to the connections. Um, that's that's a, a major thing that um, we all get out of it. And I know um, I'm a co-track chair for one of the conference tracks. And I know the conference committee have been working um, working really hard to figure out not just how the presentations will come through well uh, digitally, but those networking connections can still be uh, formed via our computers. Yeah. One of the things at that conference that really got me excited was meeting young professionals like yourself. So um, at the time that I went out there, you know, I had just left the hospital system that I had worked at for about nine years and I had started Mm -hmm. my own business. So I was 10 years into my career and I got to meet you and uh, many other young professionals who, you know, were coming in and you guys had ton of energy. Most of you are about the two-year or three-year mark of your careers and a lot of excitement talking about, you know, continuing your education, what certifications were most appropriate and important to be a change leader within healthcare. Um, So, you know, a lot of conversation about people getting their MHAs, studying population health, a Mm -hmm. whole, whole bunch of energy. And, you know, that's one of the things I just gobbled up being around people who wanted to make a difference and and do that by investing in themselves reminded me even after 10 years of being in the career that I needed to continue to be committed to learning 
and stretching myself to gain new skills so that I can be a difference maker. And, um, you know, that's really why I reached out to have this episode is because you have recently done that. You have made a decision to go back and invest in your education. And I thought it would be awesome to do an episode on what motivated you to do that, what that experience was like and what you'll be doing next. Sure. Yeah. So I uh, had this had this plan pre pandemic, and then uh, kind of slotted well right into um, what we've gone through in 2020. But I am a student right now at Emory University's Boisweta Business School, which is in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I've lived in Atlanta previously, so uh, go to school at a um, University that's five minutes from my home, though most of the time I am sitting in my home <laughs> looking at my computer. And I'm doing their one year MBA program. So it's an accelerated program. Um, and you know, had the option between the one year and the two year. But it's it's been interesting. It's been really exciting. I've I've learned a lot. Um, and then we've just dealt with so many new things and new learning opportunities that have been brought forth by 2020. So um, it, it's been great. I can't wait to dive into some of the ins and outs of your learning experience. And um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, it's going to be a, a, a great conversation, you know, because you're getting kind of like the most current um, body of knowledge or tools or way of thinking because of the crisis. And when I went to school, I got my MBA between 2009 to 2011. So accelerated back then was three years. Um, but I was, a, I kept working and going to night class like once or twice a week. So I imagine your accelerated program with it being a year, you've had to become, go back to being a full-time student. That's correct. So I um, had, a, had a great job with Goldrack Consulting. Uh, which is a theory of constraints-based consultancy before coming back to business school. Um, it's funny, we were talking about HSPI earlier and the connections that that conference can uh, bring about. And I got that job from meeting Vinny Montero at an HSPI conference, I guess now somewhere between three and four years ago. Um, him sharing about theory of constraints and that specific process improvement methodology and um, just just keeping up connection with him. And so he he was at Goldrack Consulting and brought me in there. So I, I really enjoyed that job, got to travel um, and work on both some airline and healthcare projects. Uh, but yes, I did have to... Um, you know, quit my job to to go back to school. So it is an intensive year where school is my my number one focus. Yeah, curious what has motivated you to go back and to get your MBA. Yeah, so I think there are a couple things that just have set me up for success in this way, and I I, I think I should acknowledge those. I'm a child of a college professor, and so. Uh, I did grow up just having uh, bent towards academia and and learning, and so I'm really grateful for for that that it was um, encouraged in my my household, and I think that certainly has influenced me. And um, 
But why now, why this degree was more around the fact that the last four years I've been in consulting, mainly on the operational side. And so figuring out how a company does what they do and how to do that better. And of course, that is um, the meat of process improvement. But some of the questions I was beginning to have on the job were around, why are we doing what we do? And there's improvement to be had in that space as well, which is a bit more strategic. And so I really wanted to learn more about strategy and have that strategic lens complement more of my operational background. I'm, have degrees in industrial engineering and so very process focused and so I wanted more of that why and so that's that's kind of the primary content that I was looking to get out of it um I think uh on another note knowing that in healthcare uh credentialing is important um you know we're used to seeing those badges with multiple letters behind the name um, I know too that there is um, just an element that an MBA uh, can get you a, a step further in some specific arenas, and I know healthcare is one of them, and I'm passionate about the healthcare space. Um, so those are a couple of the reasons why right now I, I decided to get my MBA. I could definitely connect with those things. I was working in an operational role helping a fundraiser manage their treasury services processes. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I would start to ask a lot of questions about, you know, not how do we do this, but why do we have the regions and all the donors of that region give to the region and then have the region give to us? And, you know, the, the way that the work was structured, I was starting to ask kind of bigger picture questions. and you know, starting to think in a more strategic way. And there was just so many gray areas and gaps and what I was able to do because I just lacked the, the skills and I wanted to do more. And I also wanted to get closer to the work. So in philanthropy, you know, processing the funds and making sure the gifts from the donors got to the field agents and that, you know, that the mission was carried out, you know, has the person processing the funds, I was quite a few layers removed. And I wanted to see the outcomes and get closer to the good work that was happening. Uh, so that led me to want to be in healthcare. So I, I went back to get my MBA for this, almost the same two reasons is I wanted to be more strategic and I wanted to position myself well to get into the healthcare sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and from what I understood about your experience, there's also this financial understanding that I didn't have as a process person. Um, I uh, had had, forget what the class was called, engineering economic analysis, I believe. And it's really about project justification. So, you know, you learn enough finance to be able to say, if I'm going to do the, this specific project and it has these costs at year one, year two, year three, um, this is the the overall value and the, the present value that, that that project is going to bring me. So you learn a basic set of that if you, you know, get an industrial engineering degree or something along those lines. But 
I did not have an understanding of some of the macro finance of an organization. I didn't know how to read a balance sheet. I didn't know how to read an income statement. And those things, um, I didn't know how to do a pro forma. And those things are really connected to some of the strategic decisions that need to be made in organizations as well. Um, uh, because we need to keep those <laughs> those organizations um, alive and serving. And of course, sometimes that comes down to uh, financial life still being in the organization. So um, I think strategy was the main reason, but I know you focused on finance a bit as well. And I, I, I didn't fully understand how much finance complemented strategy um, until taking the courses I've taken in the last uh, eight months or so. That is uh, probably a wake-up call or eye-opening for some of the audience members because not every organization actually administers their strategic plan in congruence with their budgeting processes or their finance planning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes these two activities are separated and they don't talk to each other. I know that was has been the case with some of the organizations that I've assessed as a Baldridge examiner. Uh, it's been uh, true for some of the organizations who've employed me. And, you know, it's really hard to implement a plan you don't have any human capital or financial resources to actually execute on. So if, if you're at an organization, you hear this episode and your organization's not trying to uh, dovetail your strategic planning and your financial planning processes, <laughs> knock on their door, send them an email and say, we got to figure this out because you're probably, you're probably being effective, but you're also probably hobbled. And mm-hmm. if you can get those two things to work together, you're going to accelerate your strategies in ways you never thought possible. Yeah. And, and taking it a step further, you probably see an organization too, where then the operations and how they're actually executing is a whole third strategy, right? That's not, <laughs> there's mm-hmm. like this, the uh, strategy that the organization claims, the, the budgeting, the finance, and, and then the execution are kind of all going in different directions. And um, certainly all, all three of those need to work together if, um, if you're going to have success for the organization and, and the people it's serving. So. Um, yeah, it's it's really nice to be able to go through my curriculum and see places where um, I can integrate those more in my future roles and also look back at some of the work that I was doing before and say, oh, wow, I was really missing <laughs> this part and this part. And um, yeah, it, it, it's great to have a couple of years experience before doing the MBA to be able to uh, take those experience and kind of reevaluate them with this uh, new MBA lens. You're definitely speaking um, to a lot of the things I've experienced, either getting my MBA or my PMP. Uh, I have a lot of nerdy credentials after my name because I wanted to be an effective change agent within my organization. So I got my PMP, I got my black belt, my master black belt. And, you know, I, I worked for a little bit. I was doing projects mostly wrong, um, but getting them across the finish line. And then when I enrolled in these certification courses and I studied the body of knowledge, I was able to look back at my experiences and 
it was pretty enlightening. I think I grew in my understanding of the concepts because the hands-on experience I had done was kind of like bootstrapped um, Mm -hmm. and glued together. And then because it was such a struggle, I was able to realize, oh my gosh, there's such an easier way to do it that those tools that were being presented or those concepts that were being presented just stuck with me to say, oh, this is, this is not only the right way, this is the easier way. Mm-hmm. And and I think it gives a, a, a kind of example for you to also pull from different methods that can all be beneficial. So once you have experience at an organization or through consulting projects or what have you under your belt, then you can go and look at some lean tools. You can look at some Six Sigma tools. You can look at some kind of traditional project management. Um, and, and you can look at this whole repertoire of tools that you have as an improvement nerd and then go into a project and say, how am I going to build the unique tools, techniques, process for this project in this context? Um, and so that's that's really fun is that um, nothing is like a perfect, you know, magic bullet, but you have that context to be able to look at a project and say, how am I going to pull from all these different great resources and put them together for this place, this time and, and these people. That is just so well stated. And another reason that I wanted this episode to happen you know, when I was brainstorming, what what am I going to call this? And I don't know still uh, what we'll title it, but mm-hmm. I was like, this is a person who's advancing their improvement nerd through continuing their education, but they're also want, trying to play a little bit of a different game in regards to improvement. They're not wanting to pick one body of knowledge, lean or Six Sigma or project management or agile or design There's or theory of constraints. There's all these methodologies that exist you're trying to to learn across all of them and find ways to customize an approach to increase the likelihood of success for whatever change effort needs to occur Mm -hmm. you know i'm not of course you have to be able to get down in the details and be analytical and be able to run something through to completion but i think there is a beauty to um being a generalist and knowing uh, a, a large landscape of um, different tools, techniques, methods that could help in a project. And then, you know, being able to pick out what is going to work for that specific company or that specific problem. And then, you know, you may not have all the depth on that, but you at least know where to go to an expert. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that generalist model can be. Um, can be very helpful. I I agree with you, and I know there's probably people on the other side of it who don't. Um, <laughs> but you know, for me, why I got into improvement is because I liked um, working on different challenges, working with different people, mm-hmm. and just the uh, array of experiences that that would lead to. And work when I say working with other different people it's working through them you know like your role as a facilitator is to help them realize their own ideas and the potential in them 
mm-hmm. and kind of giving them the permission to experiment and, you know, just to look at their ideas through a different lens and to have higher levels of trust and confidence in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. I mean, there's so much that is the the soft skills to it, um, and and not to knock the specialists who are who are out there. I think um, generalists and specialists both need each other. Um, you can't just uh, be able to survey the landscape and and knock it down into the details um, that a specialist can really bring. And on the on the flip side, you know, you can't just attack every single problem with um, one specific lens that um, a specialist can bring. So, um, yeah, I think it's I think it's complementary. Uh, hopefully, that <laughs> that keeps the um, comments at bay if there are any pro specialists listening. But um, I, I really do think that those uh, views complement each other and. You find in some people, really, I think it's called the T-shaped, uh, kind of T-shaped knowledge. Mm-hmm. You heard about that? Where yep. they are, are broad enough to um, kind of know that there are lots of tools out there and, and know to pull from maybe the one that they don't have as much experience in if they need to. Um, but then the the base of the T, kind of the the vertical line, I guess, is representing going deeper into um, one subject, so that um, you do have that specialization in one specific area. I yeah, I've heard the T people and the I people ha- as well. And uh, and going back to yeah, my MBA. Um, I became a T person and where I chose to specialize was a pretty nerdy topic. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. so I want to hear what you chose to specialize on, but I picked arbitrary pricing theory, APT, mm-hmm. which takes like a set of financial assumptions. And once you validate them, you can use these financial assumptions across all of your financial decision-making. And some of those assumptions you're doing are kind of the harder, squishier, softer things to quantify, such as culture or brand reputation, Mm -hmm. loyalty, you know, dollars and cents, the hard green dollars, those financial assumptions are pretty straightforward. But when it comes to doing improvement that gives people efficiency, gives people time savings, give people passion or purpose in their work, those are a little bit harder to quantify. So I chose to focus my specialization on that. And really that's how I bridged the gap and got into healthcare is the organization was doing a lot of good improvement, but they could never show it on a scorecard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my first assignment was to be able to do that. So, and that I could not have done that had I not gone back to school. Yeah, that is, that is very specific and uh, probably more specialized than, um, anything I've studied, but I've been really interested in the connection between strategy and operations, um, just because of that disconnect we talked about earlier. Um, and so there's a, a class that I took this semester called Operation Strategy um, that's been really interesting and looking at how different organizations um, can focus on um, different areas of kind of how they, how they win, how they compete in their market. Um, so we had a module on competing on cost, a module on competing on quality, a module on competing on like customer intimacy and um, 
a, a module on being uh, very, very flexible and, and agile. And so uh, that was probably my favorite course this semester. And I think that that's, that's right in with, with my background that I talked about and, and why I wanted to go back to business school. I think that's a great place to be specializing because that was one of the, uh, and probably is one of the bigger issues within organizations outside of syncing your strategic planning with your financial planning process is deployment of your strategic plan and getting your operators first to provide feedback on the plan mm-hmm. um, and validate it and you know help that or that leadership level benefit from uh, the reality check that an, only an operator can give you. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. oftentimes leadership may have different different perspectives or a different understanding of what reality is. And, you know, the operators, when they're engaged in conversation, they can really help the leadership level understand what the reality is of conducting the work or serving the customer. So the the two really need to participate in routine dialogue about where are we going and really the operations is how how do we get there? Because they know best what changes need to happen to actually achieve those objectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely uh, should be a two-way street, but we we see it as one way far too often. <laughs> far, far too often, you're exactly right. So I think you picked a specialization that is going to uh, allow you to be more successful than you have already been in your career. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. It's been, um, it's, it's been really enjoyable, but uh, I do feel like I'm learning a good bit and um, even have a job lined up already for post-school. So um, hopefully, hopefully all your wishes of success will, will come true. <laughs> yeah. Don't let down the improvement nerd audience. Okay, AJ, you got a lot of weight on you now. I will check back in. Uh, we can do a follow-up, see if uh, I have failed or not. <laughs> yes. So I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about the coursework you were doing. And there's two focal points of the the next thing I hope to nerd out about is what were some of the topics that that came up because we were um, in a pandemic and still are in a pandemic. Many organizations have had to move to crisis management. And I want to know how that impacted the dialogue you were having with your peers. So the other students, but also with your professors. Um, And then also just kind of what school is like now. You know, I have kindergartners who are doing Mm -hmm. virtual kindergarten because of the pandemic and uh, our first, second grader, he goes uh, four days a week and has one day uh, online. So, you know, school looks very different for elementary, junior, high school. I'm imagining uh, people are doing their undergrads, and I'm sure those people in graduate school have had to go through some changes too. So, want to mm-hmm. nerd out on either of those two topics? Hopefully, both of them. Yeah. So it's it's been interesting. I, I expected to uh, take this time off from from being in the workforce and to be on campus at my campus that is five minutes from my house and uh that that all changed mid-march so um i especially doing the one-year program i may do my entire program uh, essentially online so in the one-year program uh we start out in the curriculum by doing a group of classes called the core 
And that is pretty typical at many of the, the big business schools. Uh, the core will be kind of like your required classes in an undergrad curriculum. Those ones that really give you a broad understanding of business and set you up to then specialize in kind of electives or, or things that you may take in, in the following semesters. So we do core in the semester, which has classes like um, operations and process, uh, marketing, strategy, finance, economics. Uh, we have a class on leadership, which is really interesting. Not all classes have that, or not all um, MBA programs have that. Um, we have a class called Impact, which is also a bit unique. It is a project-based course. So it really helps you take all the learnings that you're getting in your other classes and put them together on a real-life project. Um, and so I'm missing a couple there, but that's that's the gist of the, the core semester. And it is very, very intense. So during our core semester, it was during the summer. And of course, there was so much uncertainty around COVID-19. And that was entirely online. So I expected it to be entirely in person and it was entirely um, online. Then after that, moving into uh, this fall and then which just wrapped up and my upcoming spring, I have choices in the courses that I take. Um, electives that I've taken thus far are like advanced um, finance for strategy, which is Kind of tying those two bubbles together like we talked about before. I took a negotiations course online, which was um, really interesting. We'd go into breakout rooms and it was really a, a role play based class. So we would uh, read our side of the, the argument um, beforehand and then go into a breakout room and negotiate with one of our fellow classmates who was playing a different role. Um, yeah, so things like finance, um, at the op strategy class I was talking about, negotiations, I took an entrepreneurship class. So you really have much more um, freedom in the following semesters. And then the nice thing too was that Emory University went to a uh, model where some classes were hybrid in the uh, fall, and that is continuing in um, spring. Emory is uh, very well connected in the healthcare space. And I think the students and faculty have been pretty diligent. And so they have this, this pretty robust plan in terms of um, testing. I have free testing available to me for uh, COVID-19 at any time, even asymptomatic, which has been uh, really, really nice. Just I've been going every two or three weeks just to um, have that sense of safety because I know people my age may be uh, completely asymptomatic, but spreading uh, COVID-19. So they really have this robust plan and uh, an ability to scale back and move classes that are hybrid. So part online and part in person to fully in person if they need. Um, so that's kind of what it structurally looks like. Um, Emory's done a great job and they're pretty well connected to the CDC as well because it's it's in Emory's backyard and that's the backyard of my condo as well. Um, so that's structurally how it's looked like. Um, I, I know I've talked a lot there. I can talk a little bit more about some of the content changes, which 
Would that be interesting? Yeah. yeah. So when I went back in 2009, like, mm-hmm. um, there were some courses offered online, but they were more like log in, read these articles, read these chapters of the book. Like it wasn't really ever my professor, um, you know, lecturing or video of them. And most times like they were a name on my syllabus and a face I never saw. So Mm -hmm. online learning has changed quite a bit. And it sounds like you've benefited from the advances of technology. So you were still getting video you're doing breakout sessions and working with teams. So when I was doing online, it was just me and, you know, never really knowing if I was grasping all the concepts until the mm-hmm. final exam. So like you would, uh, you know, do your coursework, you would read your pages, all of that. And you wouldn't really ever have dialogue to to verify the ideas or to make sure you were getting the concepts. So that was mm-hmm. not much fun. I, I, was not excited about the e-learning classes, but it sounds like, you know, as a result of what everyone's experiencing right now, you know, things have really advanced in regards to how um, the digital tools are actually enabling ed- education in a much better and different way. Mm-hmm. It was it was more seamless than I expected to do the transition online. Of course, uh, you, you do just miss those little conversations after class with your classmates or that question you would have asked your professor um, as you walked in. But Zoom has really, really helped out. And so, I mean, I I see my professors, it's synchronous, so I can ask a question and we use um, anything on Zoom that we can, you know, the the right hand feature and um, the annotation was pretty fun. We had a professor who was absolutely notorious for cold calling in class. So you, uh, in the normal environment, you show up to class and everyone had just submitted their homework as they walked in and you just pick someone and they have to come up to the board and, you know, draw the the supply and demand curve on uh, the whiteboard. And so he he really did a great job replicating that in a virtual environment. Um, You know, he just picks picked one of us from the Zoom list and then would uh, have have his little graph set up and uh, give permission over Zoom for that person he'd picked to draw their uh, whatever they wanted on his um, PowerPoint slide. And so it, it really, um, in terms of content delivery, it, it didn't um, seem that different. I think the big difference um, may just have been some of those social and networking aspects, um, because you know we we can't safely be within six feet of one another. Um, but the the delivery of the content was pretty pretty similar to to in class experience, and the the professors I had did a great job adapting their uh, normal styles and still kind of keeping their own styles in just a new Zoom way. I think you just established credibility to online curriculums and online MBAs to be to be honest this is probably not very popular but because I went in person mm-hmm. and it took me three years and then as I got into my role I, I moved into senior leadership and I eventually sponsored people to go get their MBAs and some of them went traditional method as I had and 
you know, did a three-year program and in person, but then there were other ones who were doing accelerated programs. And to be honest, I, I was kind of judgy. You know, I, I questioned the credibility of the education they were getting. I was concerned uh, that you know, in, in some ways they were competing with the degree that I had mm-hmm. and on paper, what would that look like? So I made a lot of, uh, you know, bad judgment about it. Well, you kind of peeling back some layers there uh, it creates a clear picture of it is the same thing. Like mm-hmm. it's just as much work in a shorter timeline delivered through online. And it's, you know, the education is just as robust as any, any in-person program across how many years that program thinks appropriate is to complete their coursework. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, I, I agree with you. I think some of the online programs tend to be um, not as highly ranked as, as some of the in-person programs. And so some of them are a bit predatory, right? We've all seen some of those, but um, uh, I, I think that even the, you know, big, well-ranked business schools are having to move to an online format and a lot of them have done a really good job doing that and so it shows it shows the possibilities um i know a friend who is going to business school at the university of north carolina so it's keenan flagler business school and she uh enrolled in a completely online program pre-pandemic so she expected this um no matter what 2020 brought us and they have this great online program. It's um, a bit more asynchronous, kind of like you were talking about. She logs in and watches videos rather than as much live question and answer with her uh, professors and fellow classmates. But um, she said it's it's really well curated and um, very easy to use discussion boards and things like that to get timely answers and ask those questions that you may walk ask like walking in out of class and so I think you know some of the some great business schools are are really showing how they can uh, deliver really quality material and produce great students um, in in the online format yeah thanks for sharing those insights I do want to kind of circle back and talk about the discussions that are being had within the classroom. So when I went in 2009, uh, the economy had just collapsed um, due to the housing crisis of 2008, which was Mm -hmm. towards the back end of 2008 and into the early part of 2009. So because of the events that were occurring within industry, you know, the professors, the students, everyone at large was going through a lot of change and mm-hmm. the conversations in the classroom were really um, forward thinking as a result of that. And I imagine, mm-hmm. you know, because of the challenges we've had since March and and who knows how much longer we're going to continue to be in this uh, pandemic and all of this uncertainty. So, you know, I, I'm imagining the conversation changed as a result of that. So what were some of the 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 focuses and the conversations that you had in your courses that you were like, man, 
this is really cutting edge stuff. I'm so glad I'm here. I'm so glad I'm alongside all these other minds so that we can think about these things. And when we graduate and go into the workforce, these things we can carry with us and do things differently as a result. Yeah, I think 2020 has obviously brought us all a lot of strife, but a lot of great opportunity for learning. And I see that playing out in my business school experience, mainly along these two um, areas. One is just around disruption and um, all that we've uh, changed going into this virtual world unexpectedly. So um, there's elements of that and then elements of addressing inequity um, and injustice. And so speak to both of those individually for a second. Um, in terms of content around disruption um, in our strategy and operations process specifically, um, some of the content shifted to be around uh, what do you do when there is a total paradigm shift. Um, not just that there are things about the world that um, are changing and your business needs to adjust a little bit, but a lot of the core assumptions upon which your business is built are just kind of the rug is pulled out from under <laughs> from under your business in that way. And you know, I I don't think we're far enough into a uh, post-COVID world to know if we have a paradigm shift yet, but I think all the all the markers are there. And so we had some really good uh, content around how does a business capitalize on um, that opportunity to rethink how they do what they do, what they do, why they do it, um, specifically with a, a bent towards digital disruption, uh, because that's, you know, business-wise, that's one of the main things that has changed. Um, so we talked about it in terms of a strategy and operational lens. And then, like in our leadership course, we had a, a section just on how do you lead a virtual team, um, which I think COVID or no COVID, uh, that's something that was um, a big trend and we were all going to have to move closer towards um, it, in the next few decades anyways. So that has been, um, been really interesting and, um, it, it's been great to be in a space right now, uh, with a couple hundred other, you know, young, excited professionals who are spending time thinking about, um, how, how our world might adapt in that way. That is Really cool. Did you, were there case studies that you all focused in on any example of like a business making a pivot or wrestling with these paradigm shifts and making decisions that have really transformed their business identity? Yeah. Um, so I think we, we had some interesting ones around uh, businesses that were traditionally in-person retail and are shifting now and then uh, to, to e-commerce. And then um, some of these cases are being written as we speak. So we had some interesting conversations around what the airlines are doing. And uh, Emory University is also well-connected to um, uh, Delta, which has consistently been ranked one of the, you know, the top airline in the US. And so 
Um, we've also had the opportunity to uh, kind of go into live cases where we have someone from Delta come to speak to to our class. Um, and and so some of those aren't aren't written cases, but I think in in five years there are going to be a lot of uh, cases that have been uh, written up, edited, and published around what happened in 2020 and how um, businesses adjusted. And then some have just been really fun too. Um, Georgia is uh, the home to Waffle House, and so one of my favorite uh, cases we went through in. Uh, my strategy course was around Waffle House. And they have built their um, platform on a couple of things. One is, you know, the service that they offer when you come in, they're going to say, hey, honey, how you doing? Like a very uh, <laughs> Southern bent to their approach. But they've also been built around being open 24-7 as an in-person establishment. And so uh, we looked at ways that they were considering, you know, do they do a, a takeout option as Waffle House? Like some things that I would have never thought I would be talking about going into business school. Um, it, it was really interesting and made me want to waffle. <laughs> <laughs> One of the business cases that we did, because there was a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions because mm -hmm. access to capital was so hard during that crisis. So Marvel and Disney was mm -hmm. that, that merger was one of the business cases and, you know, trying to assess who is this a right decision and have, it was split 50, 50, half the class saw the strategic alignment, um, but maybe didn't fully understand it and weren't, wasn't supportive of it. And then, you know, there was other people who got the picture and obviously, you know, Marvel, changed now because movie going is going to look so much more different in the future mm -hmm. but up until last year you know that decision was obviously something that paid off in big time because the marvel universe videos were some of the highest grossing production movies ever they mm -hmm. set box off so it was it is interesting to see it's hard when you're right next to it and everything's so chaotic to to see the bigger picture um, so I think it'll be fun to look back at some of the business cases and the case studies that have happened and say, wow, what visionaries to have made those decisions that they did and no one else believed in them, but look at where they are now as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm so interested to revisit some of these things that I, I got the opportunity to spend time thinking about now in 2020 more than I would have if I were on the job somewhere and uh, hopefully pull out some of these binders in 2025 and say, look at where are these organizations now? Where did they end up um, taking themselves and their customers um, through the disruption that I really believe will lead to um, a paradigm shift. And yeah, you and I have a lot of similarities in both going um, during, you know, a, a downturn in some way. Um, if you were there during the, the 2008, 2009 um, financial crisis. Yeah. And one of the things looking back on my education is because of the crisis occurred uh, due to financial processes and them being in, inadequate and regulatory things and also predatory mm -hmm. lending. A lot of my curriculum was 
really analytical and uh, unempathetic. So a lot of things on integrity and fiduciary responsibility. And we even signed at the end of the MBA, like a statement of ethics of how we would act and behave as working professionals. Mm -hmm. And because the events unfolding, everything went stronger to business. And then I took that into the workplace and that was kind of cold and sterile. And what, what, soon happened thereafter was a lot of people realized we maybe went a little bit too far in one direction and we needed to balance back out with things like emotional intelligence and vulnerability. So I learned those things later, not in my MBA. Um, but I imagine now like emotional intelligence is part of a core curriculum. And you and I, when we were preparing for this, you'd shared one of the things that you were really happy that was being discussed in your MBA was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm can't wait to kind of hear just what, what does that look like from an MBA curriculum perspective? And do you, Mm -hmm. I'm excited. I hope that it sticks and that it's part of every curriculum going forward. Yeah. I, I think that Emory was already set up uh, probably better than they were 10 years ago to uh, talk about emotional intelligence and just some of the um, empathy, some of the primers for having uh, conversations around injustice and inequity. Um, prior to 2020, uh, our, our leadership course is actually based on those four tenets of emotional intelligence. And so I think they were already kind of set up for it. But then, of course, 2020 has uh, brought to us a greater reckoning with some um, specifically racial injustice and inequity. And then COVID pandemic itself has um, deepened some of these inequities in our country. And so, you know, Emory being in Atlanta, which is, you know, in so many ways critical to civil rights movements of the past and of today, um, I think it is very well positioned to uh, be a program that we we talk about these things. And so over the summer, we had um, sometimes two a week, uh, one or two a week discussions where um, we were talking about uh, racial injustice and inequity. And then that has uh, been brought into my courses in a couple of different ways. Um, in that leadership course, where we also talked about virtual teaming, um, we had a, a section on how you connect with um, others on your team or in your organization who are uh, much much different than you in, in some you know some regard, whether that be race, religion, um, sexual orientation, um, sometimes just a, a way of thinking, how they grew up, um, and so there there's one of the ways that showed up, and then. Our strategy professor uh, changed her lesson plans a bit and had uh, an entire uh, section of the course where we talked about organizational design to reduce harmful biases. And so that was really cool to see how um, we can take the research that's already out there on um, you know, racial inequity um, and uh, gender inequity and those things and uh, use that information to go into an organization and um, design it so that 
uh, practices in things like hiring, um, training, retention, promotion um, are not uh, deepening inequity, but um, bringing all people to be able to uh, use their best skills to to benefit us all. And so um, that's been that's been incredible, and I'm really grateful that um, my program has made that a focus. I, I'm thankful for it too. And I'm also thankful that in the work experience I've had and the circle of professionals that I've surrounded myself with, that that's been a key focus of conversation with them. And how do I become a better leader through awareness of my own biases, but also, um, you know, in the process design and really just be more forward thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, any leader who's listened to this realizing you know, it's being talked about in uh, coursework now and the future workforce is diving deeper and deeper into this topic and understand its importance where, and are going to bring ideas about these things with them as they, you know, come into an organization and, and occupy leadership roles. So people who are currently leading, you know, this would hopefully be a message to them to invest a little bit in broadening your knowledge about these topics and, and to become a champion. And I think oftentimes you hear the word ally used and become an ally for those people who have under are, are underrepresented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think the, the coursework has been, um, been great. Um, I think it's ever evolving. So I think there's still ways that it could improve, right. That's how we should all think about it. But, um, it it's really has adapted for today um, and, and caught up to, um, you know, some of these things we haven't been talking about that we should be. Um, and then I also have to give a huge shout out to just some of my fellow students, because um, even when um, the coursework, you know, there's, there's regulation in academia and you have to get your syllabi approved and all of that. So, you know, sometimes um, where the students wanted to have conversations around something or make a change around something. And um, the, the formal structures of the university um, weren't moving as quickly as some of our thoughts were. Uh, some of my fellow students have just really taken initiative in um, making us all better around uh, specifically racial injustice and inequity. Uh, one of my fellow students started a case competition uh, that is based at Emory University, and it's called the John Lewis Case Competition. Emory is based in the um, the congressional district that John Lewis served for over 30 years. And so it is um, uh, just the right place for this case competition. For those who maybe are saying, what is a case competition? Um, in, in business school, I think we've talked about cases already on this on this call. You know, a case is just um, usually you get a, a reading or some sort of material that's around a specific business and usually a, a problem or set of problems that they are having. And um, you call a lot of this material that you may talk about in class, you call it a case, but then a lot of business schools um, and other schools as well will have case competitions, which is where you're kind of given this set of, of material and 
you need to figure out some sort of plan to solve it. And uh, in case competitions, of course, you're uh, working with a team of usually four to six students and uh, you're competing against uh, other teams of students. And so one of my classmates created this John Lewis case competition. He's been working on it since the summer and um, it, it's live right now. So um, I'm actually uh, very grateful to be on a team that got into the semifinals. There were over 100 teams that applied from you know every top business school you could think of. And um, our, our team was one of 24, I believe, that were chosen for semifinals. And then uh, it's set up where we're working with real corporate sponsors to uh, find solutions to um, racial injustice and inequity that can be enacted for this specific client. So um, our client is Walmart. So obviously an organization that can make a big impact. And so uh, this has just been really exciting to work with some fellow students on this. And I'm grateful that uh, it was also kind of student initiated and student developed. Um, so really grateful for uh, my classmate who is incredible and, and uh, created this idea and created a team to build it out. Um, it, it's, it's provided a lot of opportunity to learn and grow um, through my MBA community, even though, you know, when I signed up for the MBA program, that wasn't even, um, you know, even in the curriculum or, or anything I knew I could do yet. So um, really, really cool how both the university has adapted and just, just the student community as well. That individual is uh, an inspiring person and is definitely practicing leadership and will be a difference maker, has through um, already bringing forward such a interesting mm -hmm. case in getting a sponsor to get involved that is has large and uh, large and broad reaching as Walmart and I can't wait to hear the results and I'm sure the improvement nerd audience is going to uh, anticipate too how your team performs so we're excited to to hear how it all turns out and in the end when these competitions happen oftentimes there's a winner but everyone wins like there's not just the group that finishes overall, you know, having been awarded whatever award of the case um, is appropriate, but everyone just the experience of doing a case like this and the organization getting to hear all these different ideas, the benefit is tremendous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the and and Walmart isn't even the only corporate sponsor of that caliber. So they've really done a great job and hopefully these um, initiatives that were all um, thinking about and kind of putting together and organizing for these organizations will uh, be moved toward for them. And then, you know, we all can take that energy, take those ideas into all the different organizations where we're headed after business school. So um, it's really incredible. Definitely would recommend you all looking up the, the John Lewis case competition. Awesome. So far this episode has done more than I wanted it to, you know, as I'd already shared when I met you at the conference and got to meet all the young professionals, all these different make difference makers and the energy you all had. I, it was contagious. I got excited about what was possible. 
And I feel like that has happened again today, just talking to you. A lot of people looking forward to 2021 are still apprehensive and there's still uncertainty. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are tampering their excitement. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, poured yours out and put it into the universe. And I hope other people can connect with that and they can start to feel excited again too about what how they want to grow and what differences they want to make and how they can begin to equip themselves with the skills. Uh, obviously, professional development is critically important, but also the network of people who can help actually get those things done. And I, that's in some ways how I would summarize this episode is just everything you've talked about is all about optimism and having positive energy about the good things that are yet to come. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, one of the prerequisites for um, being an improvement nerd in some ways. I think, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to not remember the name of the uh, author right now, but the it's the author of Charlotte's Web, I believe, who has a quote like, um, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and enjoy the world. And this makes it hard to plan the day. And I slightly butchered that, but everyone go look it up. And that's one of my favorite quotes, but um, it really encaptures like as an improvement nerd, um, which I will call myself if you'll allow me. Um, it's, it's that feeling of um, when there are problems, not running away from them and, and almost being energized by um, the, the issues that we do have, um, not because they exist, but because it's an opportunity to uh, do better, whether that's as an organization um, or individually. And I think 2020 has brought us a lot of opportunity to do that. Uh, you can definitely address yourself as an improvement nerd. And now, <laughs> you know, having you on this episode, I'm somewhat questioning my own ability to call myself an improvement nerd because you've really, you've stepped up the game and I, you know, you've, uh, I think you've challenged all the audience improvement nerds to, you know, roll up the sleeves a little bit and get after the things that they're passionate about and to stop sitting on the sidelines. Like, yes, this is, this is a terrifying time, but leadership is needed now. Uh, Someone needs to take that risk to go forward and to, openly share what they're excited about and to go after it and encourage people to go after the things they're excited about and build a community around that. And, um, no, I can't thank you enough for coming on and just being that little extra jolt of energy to get people to do that. Thank you. I mean, you are certainly the ultimate improvement nerd and you're, you are building that community through, uh, this podcast and, um, just kind of your presence with, uh, green dot and and all of that so um yeah that is that is all you but um thank you for kind of fostering that um it's it's been great to chat with you and catch up since we haven't talked to each other since um end of february at least in this kind of long form so um it's been great and and thank you for for having me on this is my first first podcast ever so i think uh, you crushed it yeah <laughs> <laughs> if not I'm happy to take 
all the improvement notes because you know it's all about getting better. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. I hope you have a great rest of your 2020 and um, it's been a great week with seeing uh, news of the vaccine being administered. And I have some friends who are residents and, and physicians at organizations where I've seen them uh, getting their vaccine administered this week. And so it's really brought me a lot of joy and a lot of hope for 2021. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that joy and hope with us today. Of course. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, catch up with you guys soon. All right.